Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's session is entitled Alternative Therapies and Lifestyle Management After TM, NMO, and ADEM. My name is Roberta Peshen. I'm the Research and Project Manager at the Transverse Myelitis Association. We are a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune diseases. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. We're pleased that Sam Huge from UT Southwestern Dallas, Texas is joining us as our guest moderator for today. Before I turn it over to Sam, a few housekeeping pieces. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website at myelitis.org. During the call, if you have any additional questions, please send them to us via our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myelitis. Sam, could you start us off by introducing the speakers? Uh, great. Thanks, Roberta. I can do that. I do want to give a little disclaimer to all of our listeners today. I'm uh, feeling a little under the weather, got a little cold coming on, so if you hear any sniffles or, or muffled coughs, that's just me. Don't worry about it. Um, so I apologize in advance. But back to our podcast. Uh, I'm honored to be guest hosting this podcast today, and I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Scott Newsom, uh, Paula Hardiman, and Catherine Treadaway. Dr. Scott Newsom specializes in the care of patients with neuroimmunologic and neuroinflammatory disorders of the central nervous system. He has special interest in evaluating and treating patients with multiple sclerosis, transverse myelitis, neuromyelitis optica, and stiff person syndrome. Dr. Newsom works with the Division of Neuroimmunology and Neuroinfectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He joined the Johns Hopkins Multiple Sclerosis and Transverse Myelitis Centers after completing fellowship, and he is currently the director of the Johns Hopkins Neurology Outpatient Services and the Neurology Infusion Center. Paula Hardiman is one of the physician assistants in the neuroimmunology program at UT Southwestern Medical Center. After completing PA school, she worked in a primary care uh, and internal medicine office where she was able to implement many programs to help patients learn about and better manage their chronic diseases such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and asthma. In February 2010, Paula joined the neuroimmunology program at UT Southwestern. And not only is she involved in the evaluation and treatment of patients with demyelinating disorders, but she also develops and coordinates various research projects and health and wellness programs. Catherine Treadaway received her bachelor's degree in sociology and master of social work at Louisiana State University and has been at the Multiple Sclerosis Program at UT Southwestern since September 2002. She works with a dynamic multidisciplinary team in the MS Clinic and the Pediatric Demyelinating Disease Clinic, participating in research and patient care. She assists patients by serving as their advocate, locating resources, providing counseling, support and information, and arranging home and outpatient care. She also assisted in the development of the Total Life Care Clinic, a clinic within the Multiple Sclerosis Clinic, as well as participates in this weekly multidisciplinary clinic for at-risk patients. Thank you to all of our experts for joining us today. And a thank you to all of the listeners for joining us and sending us your questions in advance. I will do my best to get through as many questions as we can today. Uh, so to start out uh, getting the ball rolling, it looks like the questions mainly fell into three basic categories. Uh, questions about diet uh, and uh, um, alternative diets or special diets that could help with these kinds of diseases. And then questions regarding 
um, more issues with spasticity and movement, uh, and then also work-life balance kind of questions. So we're going to start out uh, talking about diet for the first uh, uh, part of the of the podcast. And uh, so the first question, and this comes up a lot, I'll direct uh, to Paula first. Is there any evidence or indication that gluten-free and or dairy-free diets affect symptoms? Well, I guess the way I'll start answering this question is with the first part. Is there any evidence or indication? So if you take it from that stance, no. There is no true evidence or indications that our patients should go on a gluten-free or uh, dairy-free diet um, unless they have documented a true uh, lactose intolerance or have celiac disease. Um, but what I think a gluten-free, um, in particular a gluten-free diet, if a patient chooses to follow that, what that causes you to do is to start introducing in more fresh fruits and vegetables in the diet. And so from a, just a good nutrition standpoint, there's a lot of benefits from uh, vegetables in particular and fruits that our bodies need. And so if you're eating the traditional American diet of meat and potatoes, you're missing those key micronutrients that we all need to get. So I do have patients who do what I'll say a gluten-light diet. They don't go completely gluten-free, and they do report an improvement in their symptoms, primarily uh, fatigue, cognitive effects, and some bowel symptoms, um, especially if they have a lot of constipation or gas and bloating, seem to improve when they go on a more gluten-light diet. And uh, on that note, and Dr. Newsom, you might uh, can chime in with this. Uh, in, in light of what Paula just said, are there any um, recommendations for a specific kind of diet um, or things to avoid that are more specific to transverse myelitis or kind of the, the issue with these uh, neurological deficits that could exist afterwards and having diet help or, or hurt in whatever case, those neurological symptoms? Yeah, no, I, I am just going to echo what Paula had said that as it stands right now, uh, when we look at evidence-based medicine for a lot of these complementary interventions, um, there's not much out there. Not to say that, um, you know, there may not be an intervention like a specific diet that could help an individual, um, but as it stands right now, there's not one specific diet that um, outshines another to say that, oh, you, everyone has to be on this particular diet. Uh, with that being said, though, you know, I think eating smart uh, is is always a good thing, uh, not only for, uh, you know, your neurological health, but just uh, to be healthy in general. And uh, oftentimes, uh, at least for my patients, uh, given the, the evidence or lack of evidence that we have for specific diets, I'll um, mention to them that the Mediterranean-style diet uh, appears to be one of the more healthier diets one can can uh, uh, do because of uh, you know the fruits and vegetables and um, fishes that are in it low saturated fats etc and uh, that particular diet actually if you look at other disease populations like cardiovascular disease dementia uh, the Mediterranean style diet does have actually a, a decent amount of evidence to support that it helps uh, influence those diseases, um, and since there is likely inflammation related to those conditions, 
uh, then you can uh, almost translate that, that into, you know, the patients that we take care of, that there may be some um, improvement or uh, over the long haul uh, with, with their conditions. Um, and, you know, I think we, the message really that keeps coming back to me about diets and other complementary interventions is that we need to do more studies to better understand, uh, you know, whether there are specific diets that are better than others. Yeah. Um, there was one specific question uh, wondering what uh, you all thought of the nutritional advice given in the WALS protocol diet. And honestly, I had not heard of that before I, I read this question. So I was wondering um, if you all were aware of this uh, WALS diet uh, and if you had anything to, to say about it in particular. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to uh, to start off. So Terry Walls, who is a, a physician, um, has uh, come up with this Walls protocol and uh, actually written a book. Uh, and uh, what it uh, describes is sort of her own experience and how she uh, overcame um, her multiple sclerosis, which at the time uh, was thought to be a progressive MS, and it uses uh, sort of the paleo diet principles and um, and other uh, other things. And I think if you look at some of the core features of that diet, uh, they are very similar to um, what other diets will, you know, propose in terms of um, a, you know, being smart about what you're eating, low saturated fats. Um, and, you know, I know uh, Dr. Walls, uh, from my understanding, is does have a study that's ongoing to to assess uh, her diet in more detail. Um, but it, it is, it has become very popular within the MS community uh, to try it. Um, as it stands right now, um, at least for the patients that I have who are on it, um, it may be too premature to see whether it's really helping change their, you know, individual disease course. Um, and again, going back to that, we need to have more studies uh, to look at uh, specific diets. I don't know if the other panelists have any um, experience with the Walls protocols or Walls diet. I have a little bit. I've had patients inquire about following the Walls protocol diet, and. I feel it's kind of the same take-home message of focusing on eating more green vegetables uh, because we're just missing that in our typical diet. Um, I, I think you're correct, Dr. Newsom, but uh, in the fact that we don't know how this truly plays out from a inflammatory uh, disease process, um, does it really affect the inflammation that's going on, or is it simply just going to help patients just overall feel better? Um, I, I do advocate for patients to eat more of the green vegetables and fruit because uh, I look at it as though it's not going to hurt you and it allows you to take kind of control in the management of your disease. And so anything that I think the patients can alter to give them control of in the management of their disease makes them a more powerful patient. Mm -hmm. um, moving on, there was a question. Uh, saying, I'm wondering what the experts think about probiotics. I keep reading about how the microbes in a person's gut control so much. Could a lack of good gut bacteria have contributed to a person's TM, NMO, or ADEM? 
And uh, could probiotic supplementation help afterwards? Maybe Dr. Newsom? Sure. Yeah, no, this is this is actually a very interesting uh, research field. Um, there are a lot of people around the world that are exploring what we call the microbiome of uh, disease and specifically neuroimmunological diseases. And there's quite a bit of research that's ongoing with multiple sclerosis specifically. Um, and as many of us know, there are billions of uh, bacteria that live in our gut um, in intestines, which help balance each other out. And there's some suggestion that if there is an imbalance one way or the other with this microbiome, that it could be a portal for disease, um, and specifically neuroimmunological diseases. Um, and so uh, I think at this point, there's still a lot to learn about it. Um, and I suspect that in a given individual, uh, their specific microbiome is going to be different than the next person, just like our immune systems are different uh, from one person to the next. Um, and uh, with respect to the probiotics question itself, you know, I have a lot of patients that are on probiotics, and um, whether that's going to influence uh, their disease in the long run, I can't answer that because I think, you know, we need more studies to... Uh, to look at that question, um, but uh, I think, as was already mentioned, um, uh, probiotics, at least in my mind, um, don't seem to be harmful, um, and for some people, they actually help calm some of their gastrointestinal distress that uh, may be uh, secondary to their disease uh, or some other process. Um, so I think probiotics are, at this point, um, reasonable to take. Uh, we'll have to see what more research tells us about uh, the gut microbiome in general and um, whether doing probiotics or other sort of gastrointestinal interventions will help uh, mediate the disease that someone may have and even taking it a step further, potentially folks who may be at high risk to go on to develop an autoimmune condition, maybe we can stop it in its tracks by uh, doing an intervention like probiotics or some other uh, intervention, and you know, it comes up with vitamin D supplementation um, uh, that we know, at least in MS, if someone is chronically deficient in vitamin D, that puts their lifetime risk of developing multiple sclerosis threefold greater than someone who uh, doesn't have vitamin D deficiency. So, I think this keeps coming back to that there are other things that we may be able to do um, uh, to prevent disease, and then if someone already has a disease, maybe to prevent uh, the aggressiveness of it. It sounds like from listening uh, to uh, to you, Dr. Newsom and Paula uh, speaking, the importance of regardless of, of your neurological diagnosis, of taking care of your health, be it diet or, uh, or what have you, um, otherwise to kind of help control for these some more common issues like diabetes or heart disease. Um, could you um, maybe, Paula, Paula, speak to the importance of maintaining your general health in these other ways and how uh, other uh, comorbidities like diabetes or heart disease can affect uh, the ex any existing neurological symptoms? Sure. Uh, I think 
most importantly, what we all healthcare providers need to educate our patients on is just overall good nutrition and how to take care of yourself and prevent developing other comorbidities such as diabetes, heart disease, or high blood pressure. Um, for instance, with diabetes, I would remind my patients that it can create a peripheral neuropathy. And so the symptoms of a peripheral neuropathy are numbness and tingling. And so if you have a patient with a transverse myelitis, um, an injury to your spinal cord, and they get concerned when they start having new numbness and tingling, and if they're also a diabetic, I have to ask the question, well, how well controlled is your blood sugar? Um, it's going to be hard to differentiate things. Is it because of uncontrolled blood sugar or is it because of worsening of your TM or NMO? Um, so in that regard, it is important that for patients who have other uh, diseases to make sure that you are taking care of those because they will impact your TM, NMO, or ADM. Um, for uh, patients who have allergy problems, for instance, uh, you can see a little bit of worsening of your symptoms when your allergies aren't, aren't in check. And so all this different nutrition information can be vital at helping control those other uh, disease entities also, which can affect your symptoms of TM or NMO. Thank you. That's very, very informative. Um, so uh, kind of moving on, shifting gears a little bit, uh, um, moving from diet to talking about more issues with physical mobility uh, and uh, issues of that nature, nature like spasticity. There are a number of questions that came in that looked like people were um, concerned about uh, uh, their pharmaceuticals, the drugs that they take to control things like spasticity that don't seem to be working and wondering about other uh, forms of, of therapy that might be able to help it. So first, um, there's a question about uh, massage therapy and is there evidence that regular massage therapy could reduce uh, symptoms from TM or NMO? Uh, Dr. Newsom, would you like to speak to that? Sure. Uh, what I'd like to just say first is uh, the non-pharmacological interventions for uh, the disability that we see that comes from transverse myelitis uh, or other central nervous system conditions are extremely important to incorporate in uh, patients' day-to-day -day or at least weekly treatment uh, regimen. Um, reason being is that we all have had patients that have been very diligent with taking their medications, but then they come to our clinic stating that, well, you know, either the medications are making them very sedated, some medications can actually uh, increase weakness, uh, like the antispastic agents, which is counteracting all of that we're trying to do. Um, and then there are other medications that just uh, don't seem to uh, impact the disease like we want it to in terms of uh, neural repair. And so we spend a lot of time discussing what these non-pharmacological uh, interventions can do uh, in terms of helping people, and, and everyone's different. So um, the question is, I think, a very useful question that's specific to massage therapy. Uh, it really depends on the individual. So if someone has a significant amount of musculoskeletal strain, discomfort, uh, spasms, uh, like many of our uh, TM patients do, um, there does seem to be a good role and a strong role for massage therapy. And in my experience, some of the deep tissue massage therapy, even though at the onset may be painful, 
um, just like physical therapy, over time it does seem to help relax muscles, relax some of the strain patterns that people develop because um, their ambulation is not normal uh, any longer because of the TM event. Or, uh, you know, if they're in a wheelchair, um, maybe their core body strength is, is not there, um, and that's going to develop a different strain pattern. So um, doing things like massage therapy, uh, at least in my experience, seem to help uh, many patients. And, you know, there are other uh, uh, interventions, uh, which we'll, I'm sure, get talk about, but uh, including like acupuncture, uh, which I think uh, has been very helpful, uh, not only for spasticity, but also pain reduction, um, and it uh, gives some people an overall uh, sense of relaxation, even though people are sticking pins in you, um, which is at first uh, maybe a little bit scary, but it does seem to help a lot of people. Yeah, it is a little counterintuitive. There was a question regarding acupuncture as an alternative therapy to help improve numbness and tingling sensations. Um, uh, so uh, could you, uh, Dr. Newsom or Paula, uh, maybe speak to kind of the the purpose of acupuncture, What, why do they stick the needles in you, what, what's the purpose of it, and um, does it really help uh, with things like, like the tingling and numbness and after TM? Sure, I mean, I, I can start. Um, so numbness and tingling is a, is a tricky one. Um, in my experience, if the numbness and tingling that uh, patients are experiencing have a pain or discomfort quality to it, then some of the things like acupuncture seem to help uh, more so than if it uh, is just a, a numb hand or a numb foot. Um, Although, with that being said, I mean, I've had some people over time, they have had improvement in their symptoms with various interventions. Um, to get to, you know, acupuncture and how it works, um, this would be an interesting poll uh, to take to see what, how people think acupuncture actually works. And to be honest with you, I, I'm not even sure how it exactly works, you know, it there have been some studies to to look at its use in different um, disease states, um, and within those studies, it's shown sort of a mixed bag of results um, where patient-reported outcomes, people, uh, many people seem to uh, have improvement in, in a lot of their symptoms like fatigue and pain and uh, spasticity. But as far as getting down to sort of the um, pathological or the um, I guess not pathological, but biological um, mechanisms of how acupuncture works. It's not not necessarily uh, totally clear to me. Um, outside of it's likely decreasing some inflammation, uh, maybe inflammatory cytokines. Um, you know, if you speak to acupuncturists, they'll talk about balancing out um, sort of your body, uh, which we know in disease states there's an imbalance in, in many things. Um, so I don't know if Paula has, has anything to add to that. I, I'm, I'm kind of like I don't truly understand, I would say, the science behind acupuncture. It's something about the placement of the needles is to kind of help uh, create a, a balance in, in the body. Um, I definitely agree with you on emphasizing that if a patient has more of a kind of burning in pins and needles, 
as compared to just the solely the numbness, I've, I've had better results with the pins and needles aspect of uh, neuropathic pain, get improvement with acupuncture compared to if it's more predominance of numbness. Numbness, I would say, is probably the hardest uh, symptom to, to manage. Um, but I do still recommend it for my patients with severe uh, burning and tingling, and I would say probably about 50% of them report some type of relief. Um, I would advocate uh, in Texas we now have acupuncturists have to be licensed. Um, so I would encourage each patient to kind of look into their state's laws to see what is done about the licensing of acupuncturists. And so I, I always encourage my patients to seek out one who has taken the extra steps to be licensed with the state of Texas. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, there were a couple questions that came up uh, asking about alpha-lipoic acid supplementation um, to help with nerve damage and the tingling in pins and needles feeling. Um, uh, Dr. Newsom, is there any kind of evidence to say that that could be helpful uh, in, in this kind of issue? So there are some studies out there looking at this uh, agent, um, and probably the uh, best studies at least in my mind, are looking at diabetic neuropathy, um, so peripheral nerve disease, and showing that there uh, seems to be improvement in patients' discomfort related to the neuropathy. Um, as it relates to central nervous system damage, that's a, a little more difficult because, um, to my knowledge, there haven't really been uh, well-designed uh, placebo-controlled studies to look at uh, lipoic acid um, with that being said, though, I have had patients that have taken it, uh, just like patients taking L-carnitine or biotin, um, coenzyme Q10, and, um, you know, for some patients, they feel that uh, these supplements do seem to mitigate some of their symptoms, um, and even though it's not being shown in a study, it doesn't mean that it doesn't work, right? And so... Um, I think getting back to uh, what uh, many of us have said already is that some of these supplements don't seem to be harmful uh, even at larger doses. Uh, the body most often with some of these supplements will um, uh, just get rid of it through the urine if it's not needed and it won't accumulate within the body. Um, so... Um, you know, there is some data out there, more in the peripheral nerve world for lipoic acid, but like I said, I, I've had some patients take it, and um, it seems to help them. Thank you, Dr. Newsom. Um, there is a question that came in. I'll direct this to Paula. Uh, does water therapy or floating therapy work to help manage some TM symptoms? Um. I don't, I guess it depends on what symptoms the question was referring to. I know I do recommend water therapy to help with the retraining of the gait after an acute TM, and that's just part of just overall just the exercise component for uh, my patients to do. Uh, so if they do have some uh, gait abnormalities, being in the water is kind of a safer option. Um, it, it's harder to hurt yourself if you were to fall or something. And then being in the water allows for you to get some uh, resistance training done also as part of doing your cardio. 
And so it's also important for TM patients to build muscles, but sometimes depending on uh, what muscle group has been affected, you can't do that with conventional weight training. And so being in a water can allow for the cardio aspect and to get resistance uh, training to work on uh, strengthening your uh, larger muscle groups in your legs and everything. Okay. Thank you, Paula. Um, there were a couple questions that came in uh, regarding e-STEM treatment for muscle activation uh, as an alternative therapy. And uh, Dr. Newsom, would you uh, care to speak to uh, the concept of e-STEM, what it is, and is there any evidence as to its uh, um, effectiveness in TM and NMO in these diseases? Sure. Sure. So uh, I think this is becoming more popular, which I'm glad um, about because uh, electrical stimulation has been around for quite a long time. Uh, it's been primarily used in sort of the spinal cord trauma world, uh, post-stroke world, but now is starting to be utilized uh, in the neuroimmunological world. Um, you know, I'm somewhat biased because of my experience here at Hopkins and Kennedy Krieger, uh, with our TM patients, uh, MS patients alike, uh, we will try to get them in, uh, engaged in an aggressive rehabilitation program, um, not only in the acute phase of uh, their attacks, but also in the subacute to chronic uh, phase. And so functional electrical stimulation uh, ends up being a part of uh, most of the patients' uh, rehabilitative programs. And, you know, just to uh, give you a, an example, so if someone uh, is weak from their transverse myelitis attack and um, they're not able to pick their legs up uh, against gravity, um, there are these electric stem um, techniques that can be uh, done to help stimulate the muscles that are weak in order to get them active and move in a more normal uh, fashion. For example, there's a functional electrical stem ergometry bike that people uh, can use where electric pads are put on the great muscles in the uh, thigh, hips, and buttock region, uh, which sends electrical pulses to the muscles to activate, um, and that helps someone do the cycling motion that they're not able to do because of their weakness. And if you look at what's happening in those situations, and, and you can apply this to anywhere in the body that electrical stem is being uh, um, given to a muscle, um, what we think is happening is that that is, for central nervous system conditions, sending positive feedback to the central nervous system because of the different reflex loops that are uh, present with the the nerves and the muscles, and there is some, uh, there are some small studies and uh, preliminary data that's showing that electrical stim may in fact actually help with um, decreasing inflammatory cytokines, which we know is a large component of neuroimmunological disorders, especially TM and MS and NMO, um, and there is some some data to support that um, growth factors and neuro-repair markers may be induced and increased when you have uh, electrical stim applied over time, um, which is very encouraging. And so I think part of 
these small studies showing these biomarkers changing within the spinal fluid um, uh, is setting a precedent to to move forward with um, you know using electric stim and neurological disorders more so and uh, we're actually doing a study here at Hopkins evaluating this in progressive MS to see if e-stem versus non-stem ergometry, uh, if there's any difference between the two. And so um, I think it's very exciting because, again, going back to the medications, medications are good, um, but they do have their limitations. Um, and electric stem in general, at least if we think about uh, the the bike e-stem, that has more widespread effects than just the nervous system. So if we look at uh, very nice studies done in the spinal cord trauma world, um, there's a lot of cardiovascular benefits. There's a lot of bone health benefits, decreasing osteoporosis. Um, and so it, it, main, it seems to maintain and help people's just overall general health. Um, so I'm a big advocate for, for E-STEM. Great. Thank you for that uh, uh, great uh, explanation of what E-STEM is and how it's working. Um, we have a live question that came in from Facebook. Uh, I'm going to direct this toward Paula because I know that she, she loves it when I do this to her. Um, there's a question that came in uh, asking about fatigue after TM and are there different things that one can do uh, uh, alternative or otherwise to help manage uh, symptoms of fatigue after these kinds of diseases? Sure. Um, so the first thing when I hear the words fatigue uh, in any patient is I want to get a good sleep history. Are there things that are going on during the sleep that can further exacerbate a person's fatigue? Are they getting a good um, seven to eight hours of sleep most nights? or do you have issues with pain at night that are interfering with sleep? Uh, or is there bladder issues? Is the patient having to get up every couple hours uh, to go to the bathroom? And that's the reason why they're not getting good sleep, thus causing them to have daytime fatigue. Um, do they have a spouse that's snoring and it's keeping them up? Or do they sleep with their pets in their bed? Or, so to really evaluate what's going on when they're sleeping. Um, if those things have been corrected and there's still an issue fatigue, for, with fatigue, uh, then exercising, just being active, can help reduce the fatigue symptoms. Um, so I always encourage my patients to do three to four days of uh, physical activity, about 30 to 45 minutes a day, and to try to tailor it specific to what their uh, abilities are. Um, so for people who have gait problems, I, I tell them just to get on a recumbent bike, stationary bike can help. Uh, with exercising and give you energy. There are supplements that you can take. Um, there's the old good one, vitamin B12, can still help with energy. Um, and then a lot of times in our patients will use acetyl-L-carnitine as a supplement that can be bought over the counter uh, that can help with energy. And then if it's really bad, there are prescription options of medications that we can use to help with uh, fatigue. But I try not to go that route and really look at a person's lifestyle to see are there other variable factors that could be affecting their daytime fatigue? Thank you. Dr. Newsom, do you have anything to add to that? No, I, th I think that was perfect. You know, I, I do the same thing. I, I tend to not blame all symptoms that someone has on their pre-existing diagnosis, whether it's transverse myelitis or MS. And 
um, because if you do that, then you may end up missing something that needs more uh, urgent evaluation. For example, I'll just give a quick scenario. I, one of my MS patients uh, who never really had fatigue issues uh, developed pretty profound fatigue um, called me and, you know, it was during the summertime, so a lot of patients with MS, TM, and other like disorders will have heat sensitivity and it can develop over time. And so initially, you know, the thought was, well, maybe it's just, you know, there's a change um, and maybe she's developing heat sensitivity, but it would be worthwhile to, uh, you know, ask her the questions just like Paula emphasized, you know, how is her sleep? Are there any new stressors? Is there a change in her day-to-day? Um, and then to get some basic blood work just to make sure there's not a superimposed thyroid, you know, disease, uh, B12 deficiency. And lo and behold, she was severely anemic, um, and so much so that it required a transfusion. And interestingly, um, once this was worked up a little bit further, she had a peptic ulcer that was slowly bleeding um, and not to the extent where she would have noticed it, um, you know, in her, her bowel movements uh, per se, and she wasn't have a lot, a lot of gastrointestinal distress, but that was enough over time to cause severe anemia, which then translated into severe fatigue. So um, I think it's always a good rule of thumb to uh, not just necessarily blame everything on the preexisting diagnosis that someone has and to look a little bit further um, and if you've ruled out sort of the common and more uncommon things, then start going down the line of uh, supplement um, or other pharmaceutical interventions. Um, you know, there are stimulants that can be used in addition to sort of the supplements. Thank you for, for all of that. Um, we're going to shift gears again now and uh, incorporate Catherine a little bit more. We don't want to leave her out. Um, there were a few questions that came in regarding more of work-life balance issues. Um, and the first one that, that I'd like to speak to uh, uh, is a question regarding uh, claiming disability. And so the question is, since all work is exhausting with TM, when is it time to make PT and personal pursuits a priority over employment by claiming full disability? And so, Catherine, if you could speak to um, kind of what it means to go on uh, official disability and if you have any recommendations about um, what, what uh, patients should think about as they uh, pursue something like that. Okay. Um, thanks, Sam. This is a great question. And in our clinic, it's really considered on a case-by-case basis. And we're not actually the ones making the decision if someone's disabled or not. We just provide the facts and then the policy or social security disability is doing the review. And if someone is having a lot of problems, we really encourage them to come into clinics so we can meet with them and just discuss what's going on and come up with a plan to try to alleviate some of those symptoms. And so sometimes people do need to take a short-term disability leave. And they can either do that through their family medical leave if they have the benefits, which most people do, and you could either take intermittent leave or you could take a block of leave to work on your health or work on alleviating those symptoms and decreasing those. And then some people do have short-term disability benefits. And I think it's important for people to know what are their benefits, even if they're not thinking about going out on disability. You know, do I have short-term disability? Do I have long-term disability? Um, because some employers do provide that. 
and we also want to advocate for accommodations for that person. And there's a really good resource that's available to our patients, for, to anybody. It's the Job Accommodation Network, and people can get some really good ideas on things that might help them to keep working. And usually, each state has their own vocational rehab program. And these are free services to our patients, and they can work on accommodations. And then we're, of course, happy to write those letters or advocate for them in whatever way we can or work with that vocational rehab program to try to keep people working. Because in general, we really try to support people to keep working as long as they can. But if there is a time there, you know, none of these things are working, you know, they're getting bad reviews at work, um, and they just can't continue, and you've done all these things, we really like to get all that medical documentation in the chart. Because if you're applying for Social Security Disability, which is your government benefits, they're looking at your work history, and you do have to have a certain amount of work quarters behind you to qualify for Social Security Disability. But things to consider is this is going to be a fraction of your current salary, um, the Social Security Disability, and also you need to think about medical insurance. You know, can you get on your spouse's insurance in the meantime? Because Medicare will not kick in for two years with Social Security Disability. And then there's also SSI, Supplemental Security Income. And that's for people who are disabled and can't work but, and have low income. So that's another option. And then people usually will get Medicaid with SSI. But both, and, and with long-term disability policies with your employer, we really need that documentation in the chart because that's what they're reviewing to look at. Is this person disabled and are they going to be disabled for a year or longer? So that's why sometimes just a short um, disability leave or or just taking some intermittent leave for yourself to do counseling or physical therapy or whatever it is that um, you need to do to try to help help you. Well, that's it. Sounds to it sounds like a uh, there are a lot of different options for uh, taking leave and disability. But it's it sounds like it's pretty important that if you're thinking about uh, moving in that direction or looking at your options to um, include your your healthcare team uh, about uh, those options and what you're thinking to make sure that everything's kind of set in place. Would you agree Correct. with that, Catherine? Yeah, I definitely agree with that because. If we haven't seen you in clinic in a year and you've applied and we don't even know, I mean, we, who knows what you know, was in your chart a year ago, and we may not know the current issues that you're having, and, and we want to try to help you with them so that you can keep working if possible. But then the people who, if you are not able to continue working, always tell people, don't feel bad about it. Don't feel guilty. They're your benefits, and it's your right to, to work on those benefits. But sometimes it can be a difficult process if people aren't approved the first time and they're looking at appeals, and um, it can just be a really long process. Um, mm -hmm. But some people do end up doing a lot better once they've quit working um, if it's really, they have no quality of life outside of their work. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of moves into another, another question. And uh, uh, Catherine, I'll let you speak to it first, but um, uh, Paula and Dr. Newsom, feel free to chime in. Uh, there was um, uh, kind of some, some thought in there about how a patient's uh, symptoms after years of a diagnosis are, are uh, uh, seeming to inhibit them from living a regular life because of cramps and things like that, and that more active lifestyle seems to aggravate those symptoms, and uh, there's a fear that they're becoming more reclusive. And so I was wanting to kind of um, 
ask the question on their behalf, are there uh, any kind of support um, um, groups or, or places that one can go if they're starting to feel reclusive ba because of issues with their disease, um, if they don't have a lot of uh, close family or friend support, to, um, to make those relationships and to kind of help prevent that reclusiveness from happening? Do you have any, uh, Catherine, do you have any, any initial thoughts on that? Um, well, I think um, maintaining a good balance is really important, and I just I wanted to touch on that just a little bit, but it is really important to stay engaged in activities and with your support network in any way that you can. And there are opportunities, I think, in every state. It's a, just a matter of finding them. And usually you can call 211 in your area, and they can tell you about local resources. Like in Texas, we have this great thing called RISE, and it's adaptive sports for people do, that do have some impairment. And some of our patients that have attended these just love it because they do all kinds of things. I mean, they go fishing, they go water skiing, all kinds of different things. Um, but it's, I think it's really important to attend to your emotional health, too, because if you're isolated or you're just having really intense stress, that can really take a toll on your health and then compounded by having transverse mellitus or, or, any, or any other illness. Because okay. some of the things that can come about that is feeling really down or overwhelmed or having trouble making decisions, the sleep disruption, having headaches and, and worrying. So one of the things as far as maintaining balance, which, which um, had come across as well, I think this would be a really good exercise for people to do is to keep a log for a week of all the activities that you're doing and then look at that and rate them in importance, like what's the most important, least important, or middle importance, or something that's just a total waste of your time, and then highlight those things that you really want to do more of. And I think when we're faced with a challenge or some life-changing event, it also gives us time to stop and assess what is really important in my life um, and what's, you know, what things do I really want to do more of. And then as far as relaxation skills, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about breathing because I think that's really the fastest and easiest route that people can get to relaxation and anybody can do this. And it really helps people bring control of um, their bringing an inner calmness to themselves. And I think a lot of people forget how to breathe in a relaxed manner because we have learned to live with all this enormous tension on us. And it's just a gift that people can give to themselves anytime, anywhere. Like if I'm driving in my car, I have a little lavender pouch that I keep there to remind myself when I'm stuck in traffic and getting really stressed out, smell my lavender and do some deep breathing. And also at work, I have a stone that I'll rub to make, remind me to do deep breathing as well. And it's also a part of two of my other favorite skills, um, learning relaxation, is yoga where you also get a lot of stretching and there's a lot of attention to breath. And then also guided imagery I love, where you can use your own imagination and senses to bring about calmness and helping your mind and body heal and help you keep strong. And also I think self-compassion is really important. If you're down and feeling, um, you know, we can't all do everything right. And there is um, a website you can go to to test your self-compassion and also exercises to do, you know, do, I feel like people really need to be kind and good to themselves because they're living with a lot of challenges that other people don't face. And um, they can look that up. But just 
easy things like talking with friends and family, but realizing that they have to adjust as well to, to what's going on. Music, art, prayer, just going outside can be really helpful. And I think it's just each individual finding out what works for them to relax themselves. And I really encourage everybody listening to do some kind of relaxation exercise each day, even if it's just 10 to 15 minutes a day. And if you're having problems figuring out what's good for you, maybe even seeking out to, to see a counselor or a psychologist on just management and um, learning more relaxation skills that maybe work for you. That's very helpful, Catherine. It sounds like uh, when you're when we're trying to find that thing that relaxes us, it, it might take a little bit of work up front to really um, find out what that is and make it a habitual thing. But once but once you can you can have that find that thing and take your ten minutes a day of quiet time or whatever it is that that can really have some profound effects on you long term. Would you agree? Uh, I agree, and I think if you practice it. You know, practice makes perfect, and like with guided imagery, if you practice it, it can really help lower your reaction to stress, stressful events in the future. You know, you can bring some of those involuntary responses under control, like your heart rate and your breathing. Mm. Uh, in terms of guided imagery, uh, quickly, would you um, kind of explain uh, uh, quickly what, what that precisely means or where can they do it by themselves or where do they go to learn this? Uh, yeah, they sure can. Um, there, is, there are so many websites out there where you can get imagery. Um, one of my favorites is Staying Well with Guided Imagery. It has a lot of different imagery for all different reasons, but basically you can do it anywhere. Anyone can do it. You're using your own imagination and your own senses to bring about the relaxation response. And this book, um, it's by Belarus Napperstek. You can find a, a guide for you. There's also Miriam Franco, Emmett Miller. I mean, if you Google it, there's there are so many options out there to do guided imagery, and and a lot of free options as well. So, um, or not very expensive. So it's something real easy. I think people can do for relaxation. Mm -hmm. And I think Catherine brought up a great point with the relaxation, um, the body's response to it. Patients have to keep in mind when we get ourselves in these little stressful situations that come up day in and day out, what that does is it puts tension on your muscles. And so therefore you, you, you're making your spasticity worse. And in return your spasticity is worse and now you have more pain. And, and then that could be the reason why you're not sleeping comfortably. So. It is very important for all of us to realize what can set us off to that point, but, and so what I can do about it is I can change how I respond to it. Um, I can't control a person running into my car, but I can control how I respond to that situation. And so if it means taking uh, 30 seconds and just doing deep breathing to calm myself down so I don't have the negative aspects of what stress and anxiety can cause to the body. Mm. That's valuable. Um, so uh, as we're kind of moving into the, the last couple minutes of the podcast, I was um, um, hoping that maybe uh, starting with Dr. Newsom, if you want to give some final words, final thoughts on the, on the whole uh, conversation that we've had today and if there's any final takeaway that you'd like for um, our listeners to, to have. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'd like to first mention that um, you know, complementary medicine 
in non-pharmacological interventions, in, in my view, are key in treating patients with central nervous system conditions. And it really, in my mind, it, it helps bring um, an extra uh, element to the multidisciplinary approach that we try to uh, treat our patients with. And that, you know, there are uh, not a lot of studies to support some of the complementary medicine interventions that uh, that will endorse or recommend to patients. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't help uh, on a given individual. Uh, and for a lot of these different therapies, especially the ones that um, don't seem to uh, cause uh, any harm or distress t uh, to a patient and uh, appear uh, safe, um, they're worth trying, um, uh, you know, within reason. And uh, that it always just helps me refocus that there's much more research that needs to be done uh, with a lot of these um, sort of non-Western uh, interventions, uh, including you know, acupuncture, uh, some of the supplements that were mentioned today, um, and then also looking more in depth to some uh, things like the gut microbiome. Um, and so I'm a big a big fan of uh, non-pharmacological non interventions. Um, and I think for each individual, uh, if one particular intervention doesn't work down the complementary medicine path, that doesn't mean that all of them will not work for for an individual. You just have to keep trying and seeing what may help you. Um, and so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Dr. Newsom. And Paula and Catherine, any any final thoughts, final words? No, I think Dr. Newsom said it perfectly. Um, with medicine, whether it be for the traditional pharmaceutical drugs or and alternative medicine, it has to be an individualized approach. So what may work for your friend or neighbor may not work for you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. And so we just all have to keep going and looking to find different options to help each of us as an individual. Yeah, thank you. And Catherine, final thoughts? Oh, yeah, I mean, I think just to add, add the same thing, just as far as relaxation skills, finding what does relax you and trying to incorporate that into your day um, to help you maintain balance and, and learn to say no politely when you need to um, and assessing you know, what you can take on. And then also if you are thinking about applying for disability to really work with your healthcare provider to see if there's anything that can be done first to keep you working um, and, and if not to get the documentation into your chart to help, help with your application. Thank you to all three of you uh, for your willingness and to come speak to, to the listeners today and, and for your expertise. Uh, there were a number of questions that, that came in um, that we couldn't get to today, unfortunately, that uh, seem to do with a lot of symptomatic issues and questions about uh, how, how different uh, symptoms following TM and NMO occur, and uh, that might lead to a whole other podcast. Um, but thank you for our uh, thank you to our listeners for listening, uh, for for uh, coming in today and for your questions. 
I hope everybody has a great week, and we look forward to your questions in the next podcast. Thanks again to our experts, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.